I'm Laura Clinton, and this is Kindred Cast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Lion Tree, the global investment and merchant bank. Today, Lion Tree Managing Director John Trigut sits down with Closed Loop Partners CEO Ron Gonan. With a career that spans consulting, entrepreneurship, and public service, Ron, the former Deputy Commissioner for Sanitation, Recycling, and Sustainability under New York Mayor Bloomberg, discusses his lifelong mission to align capitalism with positive environmental and social impact. It's an eye-opening conversation. Enjoy. Hi, I'm John Tragut from Lion Tree. Today, we're here with Ron Gonan, founder and CEO of Closed Loop Partners, a New York-based investment firm that is focused on building the circular economy, really building an ecosystem that connects entrepreneurs, industry experts, and more to align capitalism with positive social and environmental impact. Ron, thank you for joining us. Really excited to get into it. Glad to be here. So I think it'd be good to start for our listeners just by unpacking Ron and your background. I think I've heard you describe your passion for sustainability from a very early age, probably an outlier Mm -hmm. in grammar school, high school, et cetera. And that's clearly propelled you to a very successful career spanning academia, public service, private enterprise, investing. So can you just help us understand, you know, what motivated you from the start and how you've sustained that drive Mm -hmm. through these different chapters of your life? There's three things about how I grew up that I think have given me the insights that have enabled me to build my career. The first was when I was in fourth grade, I ended up going to a public school in Philadelphia that was one of the worst public schools in Philadelphia. This was in the early 80s when you had the crack epidemic. I grew up with a single mom, not much money. And this public school was a disaster. It was complete chaos. And at that time, Ronald Reagan was president. And the prevailing message that you got in the United States was anybody can just pull themselves up by their bootstraps and make it because that's the American dream. Even as a fourth grader, Seeing what I was seeing in this public school in Philly, I knew that message was not true. It was virtually impossible to make it out of this public school. And that's the first time I recall realizing that what society may be telling you may not actually be how it is, and that the people telling you what they're telling you may have their own interest as to why they're telling you what they're telling you. So that was a really seminal moment for me, I think, in the foundation of how I listen to what people tell me and how I view the world. The next instrumental moment for me was as I was going into high school, I uh, got a job working for a family, doing everything, babysitting their kids, fixing stuff around the house. And as luck would have it, the dad in, in the family had just left a very promising career in architecture at a leading firm to become one of the first residential green architects. This is the late 80s. He would spend a lot of time talking to me about his views on design and sustainability. And it just all clicked for me and it made sense. And I had not been influenced yet by the traditional way of thinking. So that was the second seminal moment. And I think the third seminal moment is just growing up with a single mom, struggling financially. It gave me a certain... uh, fear of not being successful and struggling and a certain drive to just make it, so to speak. Fascinating. And 
maybe tying that to your current position, fast forwarding, Mm -hmm. right? Founding CEO of Closed Loop Partners. Can you just tell us about your path to the present? Sure. So I came out of school in the uh, mid to late 90s with a degree in history and economics. And I thought I was going to go off and get a PhD in history. But it was the late 90s. It was the dot-com boom. And I got an offer to go work for Anderson Consulting, which is Accenture today. And I thought it'd be an interesting opportunity to learn about software and technology and all this stuff that was going on in the world. And that was really the first part of my career was at Accenture and then Deloitte Consulting. And it was really valuable. I learned about technology and software and business building. But in my mid to late 20s, I realized what I'm really passionate about is trying to build a business at the intersection of sustainable business practices and maximizing returns. And so I decided to go back to business school, not so much to get an MBA, but to have two years to kind of figure all this out. I came back to business school here in New York, went to Columbia with a friend from high school, had the idea for my first company, which is a company called Recycle Bank that Columbia ended up being the seed investor in. And I was off and running in terms of my entrepreneurial career. So I ran that recycling company from 2003 to 2010 and then exited that business and then got an invitation to join the Bloomberg administration in a new role called Deputy Commissioner for Sanitation, Recycling, and Sustainability. It was effectively to reimagine the city sanitation department, which is the largest in the world, with a focus on diverting everything possible from landfill. Had that experience in public service, which I highly recommend to any of your listeners. And then coming out of that, I had uh, the idea for Closed Loop Partners, which I launched in 2014. So as a huge fan of Mayor Mike, what did you learn specific to that administration, but more broadly about the public sector that's been helpful as you've marshaled into the private sector? The most important tool that I gained from being in the public sector is how to build consensus and how to listen to what people's needs are. In the private sector, you're oftentimes just looking at the bottom line. Does this make economic sense? In the public sector, you have to take a lot of different things into account when you're trying to build consensus. For some people, what they're interested in is quality of life. For some people, it's safety. For some people, it's ego. They want to be recognized for something. There's all these different attributes that go into the decision-making process of getting something approved. And developing that tool, being in public service, and then going back to the private sector, I found to be incredibly valuable. So that's an example of one thing that I learned. I think the other thing that you gain out of it is the opportunity to have tremendous impact. When I walk around the streets of New York, it feels great to see something, a piece of infrastructure or service and say, I had some part in bringing that to New York. And that's a really fulfilling thing, I think, to have in your life. Can you talk a little bit about how the stakeholder versus shareholder emphasis in your experience has evolved and in terms of your diligence processes, your conviction on investments, frankly, your drive for impact beyond just the bottom line? Sure. Well, one specific example of how that's helped me, and then we'll get into the stakeholder part of it, is we manage a suite of funds at Closed Loop Partners. We just had a transaction that required LPAC approval. That LPAC has pension funds on it. It has corporates on it. And it has family offices on it. 
And they all came at the investment with a completely different lens in terms of what they're trying to achieve with their capital in the fund. And that experience in government in terms of listening to what the other party is trying to achieve was really instrumental in helping us get LPAC approval. Because if I just would have presented it in a traditional way you might present to an LPAC, I would have gotten one third of the LPAC to be really supportive. But the other two thirds would have said, this deal is not speaking to me. But because of that government experience, I was able to put together a presentation that had three components to it, each answering the needs of those three stakeholders. So that's an example of how it specifically helps me today in my job. In terms of a macro view on stakeholders, I think, unfortunately, in the United States, starting probably post-1950, but really taking root in the 1970s with Milton Friedman and a few different economists, this concept developed around all you should care about is the bottom line. The profit is your sole interest as a manager. I think that that's completely untrue. And I think it's a way in which you actually destroy long-term value. And so I think the way you build long-term value is recognizing that what makes up your company is the government that's overseeing where you operate. It's the customers that you need to buy from you. It's the people that work for you. And it's your shareholders. And sometimes within your shareholders, because there's different classes of shares and different interests, you've got different stakeholders. And that's a much more realistic way to view business and one in which you both build long-term value and have integrity in what you do. I'd like to dive a little deeper on two elements there uh, that you just covered. One was clearly on-the-ground experience with administration, municipalities. What would you impart into future you know, local administrations or, or otherwise based on your best practices learned? And then number two, I think we can go into some of the capitalism perception in today's economy. Something that the Bloomberg administration had that was a massive advantage that it's almost impossible to find in other administrations in any government entity of scale is that he was independent of any special interests. And so whether or not you agreed with Mayor Bloomberg or his administration, the decisions that were being made were being made independent of whatever special interests there were out there and whatever checks they were writing. And that's a very, very unique and special situation that unfortunately doesn't exist anywhere else in the United States today. The more we can enable government to function as close as possible to that, where politicians can get elected and can manage without the influence of outside money, is the thing I took away from that administration's uh, success. So that's number one. Number two is Bloomberg was able to attract some incredibly phenomenal people. I would sometimes meet with somebody who was in charge of this division or that division, and I I would look them up before going into the meeting. And I'm like, oh my God, this this is like the world's expert in this thing. And they could be doing anything, working for any private company, working in any academic institution, working in any think tank but they're in this government job. And it's because they felt that for a few years, they could have a canvas to operate the system into which they have expertise in in the best way possible. Thinking about how to help government attract the best people, which Bloomberg was able to do because he provided people this canvas to do what you need to do without special interest getting in your way, 
I think is the other thing we have to figure out from a civil service and a government standpoint. So back to capitalism. Yeah. Um, clearly, um, at Closed Loop Partners, you know, you're making private decisions to allocate capital judiciously and driving impact. Um, but it's become sort of a, a dirty word for younger generations. There's been a bit of a resurgent, you know, uh, gravitation towards ideologies like socialism, right? I mean, you're, you're just hearing it in different um, media forums nowadays. How would you explain the potential benefits of improving the capitalist, capitalist system that exists today in our economy? If the United States ever decided to actually practice capitalism, I think a lot of people could benefit from it. I think what a lot of people today criticize capitalism for their criticisms are correct, but it's directed at a system that the billboard or the sign on the store might say capitalism, but actually it's operating a economic system that isn't capitalism at all. And I'll give you a very specific example. Being in the recycling industry for many years, people would oftentimes say to me, if recycled plastics were cheaper, people would be buying it. It's a capitalist country. It's a free market. Virgin plastic is cheaper. That's why people buy it. You environmentalists figure out how to make recycled plastics cheaper and people will buy it. And I would say, wait a second, you just said capitalist system, free market. That's not what we're operating in. They go, of course we are. This is America. I go, the oil and gas industry gets billions of dollars of federal and state subsidies every year. That keeps the price of virgin plastic artificially low. In order to actually have a free market and practice capitalism, you would need to give the recycled plastics industry hundreds of billions of dollars to just equal the playing field to actually allow the customer to choose based on price. And so that's a very specific example in my industry of how we haven't been practicing capitalism at all. We'd actually been practicing, let's allow special interests to donate to politicians who then make sure that money comes back to those special interests and their industries to influence price. Whatever you want to call that and that economic system, it's not capitalism. Capitalism is about a meritocracy and people being able to operate on an equal playing field and let the customer decide. That's not what we have today, which is why I think you have a lot of people who feel very disenfranchised, rightly so. It's just that their criticism should be directed at the system itself, not the name that's been put on the front of the system. Where do you see the opportunity given the momentous recent government action mm -hmm. with the IRA, effectively climate change bill, yep. infrastructure act, et cetera. There have been some recent tailwinds that have picked up some speed and mm -hmm. clearly there's some minutiae, some details to figure out the tax benefits and allocation and all that. But there's a, a huge surge of capital that can be allocated yes. to greenfield opportunities, brownfield opportunities, Clearly, there are ways to improve the oil and gas industry, which has trillions of dollars mm -hmm. of capital invested and a process that certain new age companies that you spend time with are trying to tap into. But, you know, there are so plenty of companies and solutions that may take time because hard tech, tough tech is hard. It'll take years to create commercial scalable products. Where do you see that? correlation or that juxtaposition of the macro tailwinds, which have clearly picked up some steam with some of the micro dynamics that you're evaluating day to day with new business models and companies you're spending time with? 
if we start from the premise, and if anyone who's listening has an example of where I'm wrong, it'd be great to get an email because I've always searched for an example where this isn't true. I don't think you can find an industry in the United States that has gotten to scale without participation from the government. For instance, the automotive industry did not build the roads and the highways. The state and federal government built it. The automotive industry would have gone bankrupt if they had to do that. The airline industry did not build the airports, nor do they manage the airports. State and federal government did that. Likewise, with all the excitement around electric vehicles, it's going to be the government that funds the infrastructure around it. And so I think it's really important for us to think about as taxpayers, what do we want our government doing with our tax dollars in order to support private enterprise building the country that we want? So for instance, in Texas, the grid keeps going down. That grid has received billions of dollars of federal and tax subsidies for years. It hasn't worked. The grid keeps collapsing. So let's start taking those tax dollars and either say, we're not going to give it to the oil and gas industry anymore because they built the grid that keeps collapsing. Or let's say, we're going to take the same amount of that money and provide it to solar, wind, renewables so it can get to scale and enable us to live a high quality of life. In doing so, I think you're going to support both super innovation and also big companies who want to transition. And that's the type of competition you actually want in a market economy. Taking a step back, I've heard you describe our current financial system as a take, make, waste economy. Can you describe what you mean by that? And also your vision for how a circular economy improves upon that, remediates that? Sure. Since the 1950s, the way manufacturing has worked in the United States is you extract a natural resource. So if you want to make plastic, you're extracting oil. If you want to make aluminum, you're extracting ore. You extract that natural resource, very expensive operation, very capital intensive. You then design a product using that natural resource to be used one time. The customer uses that product one time. It then gets picked up in the garbage and gets driven to a landfill where tax dollars are used to throw it in a landfill. And then you start that process all over again. That happens billions of times a day for some products. That type of system is in the financial best interest of the extractive industries. If you're extracting a natural resource, that's an amazing system to operate under. A product can only be used once. Once something is sold, you get to go back to work to extract more natural resources. It's also in the financial best interest of landfill operators. Every time someone buys a product, you know, as soon as they're done with it, the government's going to use tax dollars to pay to stick it in your hole. I look at that system and I say, well, if you're in the extractive industries or you're in the landfill industry, you've been making a lot of money for the last 70 years. But if you're a consumer goods company, like a Unilever or a PepsiCo, a Nestle, if you're a consumer, if you're a taxpayer, if you're a municipality, that type of system is not in your financial best interest. Every time you buy a product, you're paying effectively a tax for the extraction and for the disposal. Both of those situations are completely unnecessary. You can make the same product using recycled material and eliminate the extraction, eliminate the disposal. And that's what we call a transition from a take-make-waste economy to a circular economy. Okay, great. You published a book recently mm-hmm. on the circular economy and different business models. Could you share a couple of your most memorable anecdotes from that? And is there anything in the book or since you wrote the book that you'd like to comment on? Sure. I think two stories in there that I hope gives courage to people listening who are trying to 
break a legacy system that does harm and do some good is I tell the story of Rachel Carson, who in the 1950s wrote a book about all the harmful chemicals that companies were using in the products that we were buying and how dangerous it was for our health. The attacks that she faced were horrible. And it was everything from attacking her gender to her sexuality, to her intellect, very little about what she was actually saying. She ultimately died early in life without knowing what her impact was. But fast forward 40, 50, 60, 70 years later, people still read Rachel Carson. She's had a massive impact, but you don't remember any of those companies. So I think being able to tell her story was really valuable. And then the other part of it that I thought was fun to write about was advertising before World War II and how advertising in America was really focused on quality over quantity. You really looked at the quality of the shirt you were wearing, the quality of the suit. A lot of the focus was on reusing materials because that was a patriotic duty because it was very hard to extract natural resources. And you can see how post-World War II in the Mad Men era, 1950s, where advertising really became a core part of our economy, that message shifted to one of, it's not about quality, it's about quantity. Nobody was asking you, what was that suit made from? How long does that last? People were asking you, like, how many suits do you have? And it was just interesting writing about how impressionable we are as human beings and how we really have to be thoughtful about the actions that we're taking. And are those actions because they're in our best interest? Or are those actions because a very savvy marketer influenced us to, to buy those and to recognize that None of us are above that. We're all susceptible to it, which is why we really have to be thoughtful. Okay, great. Well, encourage the audience to pick up a copy. Thank you. And await your sequel. But back to the day job of investing now. How do you identify major disruptors in the sectors you're focused on? Maybe you spend a little time educating folks on where you're most focused from a sectoral perspective. And where do you see the greatest impact or opportunity for impact, returns, or both? I think there's a number of ways to identify disruptors. I'll give one example. When someone shows us a business model, what I try to do is look at the alternative to what's currently in the market and identify if the customer is really happy with that current solution. Because if the customer is very happy with that current solution, it's going to be very hard to move the customer away from that existing solution. But when we are presented with a disruptive technology or business model, and we do our diligence and we find that the customer today either isn't happy or is open to other business models or solutions. And that's a signal to us that the market is right for disruption. Yeah. And where, from a sectoral perspective, do you spend your most time nowadays? The firm is focused on four industry areas, consumer products and packaging, fashion and apparel, electronics, and food and ag. So those are the four areas that the firm is always looking for disruption. For me personally, I've been very focused on food waste in the last year because there's just so much of it out there and so much taxpayer dollar and private company dollar is spent sending it to landfill that if you can develop an alternative, it's not like you're going and looking for new budget. You're just saying, Give me your existing budget minus 20% and I can give you a better solution. Okay, interesting. ESG broadly obviously had 
a massive wave of inflows. There's been a market correction. It's taken a hit recently with people questioning returns. There's been some asset manager blowback from various constituents. What are your latest views on how large companies are approaching sustainability? We know you speak to them regularly in your LPAC and otherwise. Responsible business practices. What's the latest read from corporate America in terms of embracing sustainability, notwithstanding the market correction, the geopolitical issues, et cetera? Mm-hmm. I don't think at the CEO level, they're too concerned with the ESG moniker. I think they view it as something that's become unnecessarily politicized. I think what they are focused on is I've got a growing consumer segment that wants more transparency for my product. I give seventh generation as an example, which Paul Pullman at Unilever acquired over 10 years ago is highly criticized for buying them back then. It's proven to be a phenomenal investment. When you talk to a parent and they go to buy cleaning product for their home, And cleaning product A says, everything that's in my product is healthy for your family. And I'm going to tell you about everything that's in the product so you can check it yourself. And then there's product B. And product B says, I'm going to make no claims about the health of this product, nor am I going to give you any transparency into what's in it. Most parents are very price insensitive when it comes to that purchase. Most parents are going to say, I'm buying the product that clearly says it's healthy for my family and is going to tell me what's in there. And that customer segment is continuing to grow every day because now there's new technologies that enable the customer to get access to that information. So customers expect that information. That's, I think, what CEOs are paying attention to. My customer wants more data, more information. I need to be able to provide that to them. They're focused on the regulatory environment where regulators are saying, we're not going to continue to spend taxpayer dollars sending your products and packaging to landfill. That era is over. You can use whatever materials you want, whether it's recyclable or not. But if it can't go to a recycling facility, if it has to go to a landfill, you're going to have to pay for it. Those are the things I think CEOs are very focused on. From an ESG perspective, for me, I think ESG is simply about transparency. Investors should have the right to say to a potential investment I expect you to be transparent when it comes to your environmental record, your social record, and how you do governance. It shocks me that anybody in the financial world would find that to be controversial. That's an example of why I think this has become completely politicized. And the fact that some governor or attorney general on the Republican side, which used to be all pro-business, would think that it was appropriate to get involved in the decision process of the investment community as to whether or not they can require a potential investment to disclose their environmental, social, and governance record because they want to use that as an input to make a decision, I find to be incredibly dangerous from an economic standpoint. What is your perspective then on Chairman Gensler's agenda? Clearly, ESG disclosure framework standardization is high on the list. And you've probably evaluated a bunch of Mm -hmm. companies privately that are trying to crack the code on standardization and delivering a rubric that can actually be scaled and deliver all stakeholders the type of transparency that's demanded in today's day and age. Where do you think we are with respect to that? And what's the best framework or approach to that transparency gap that exists today? Standardization is both incredibly important and, and critical for the success of ESG. 
it's also very challenging because you need something that is strict enough to provide legitimacy for capital markets that when someone says, I use ESG as a filter, they're legitimately using ESG as a filter without it being so onerous that the cost of complying with the regulation becomes so expensive and such a burden that even though investing in that way provides better than market returns, the cost of investing in that way becomes too expensive. So incredibly important, hard to do. I hope they're successful in putting together a, uh, a good framework. Okay, great. Back to Ron, maybe family man, Ron. You've got a couple of children. Mm-hmm. You want a better world for them. What kind of world do you envision if we don't decouple from the run rate we're on, your children inhabiting? And where do you think we'll actually land given the various pressures to change globally within the country, et cetera? People might find this an interesting statement coming from somebody who is a devout environmentalist, a big promoter of sustainability and ESG. I hope they live in a much more capitalist world than we live in today. I hope they grow up in a world that is much more of a meritocracy than we live in today. At the same time that I hope that the world is much more of a meritocracy, I hope the world is much more understanding of winners and losers. That if you're a winner, you should get the spoils of your hard work and winning because you want it on merit. But if this time you lost or you didn't get what you wanted, it's not like the bottom of your life falls out. There's got to be a safety net there for society. And I think being able to do that will calm down a lot of the political tensions that we see today, that is two investors talking to each other. Those political tensions, they get in the way of being able to maximize returns. So that's one thing I'd like for a world for them to be able to live in. And the other world for them to be able to live in, if we look at what's going on in Europe, is there were some very short-term and short-sighted decisions that European leaders made in regards to energy that people in the ESG and the sustainability world warned against for 20 years. And the pushback was, ah, you don't understand markets. Ah, you don't understand economics. You got to go with the cheapest option. No, that's going to crater as soon as Putin wants something from you, and it's going to become real expensive. And so I hope we live in a world in which politicians have the ability, back to our earlier conversation about the Bloomberg administration, to take a step back and say, I don't care about all these special interests and who can make money today. I'm making investments on behalf of taxpayers focused on the long term. And beyond business, what are some of the things that you practice in your personal life that reflect your values? I try to live my values. I try to make sure, especially from the products that I buy, how I then end up using those products, energy use, that I'm a a champion for the values that my firm and me personally espouse. And then I just try to take the lessons of the things that I experienced growing up, that people are in different situations for different reasons. Sometimes it's their fault they're in that situation. Sometimes it's not their fault that they're in that situation. And the best thing that you can do for yourself and for them is ask some questions and find out. And we're all consumers. So what are some tips and tricks for people that are listening now that are motivated to help change their own waste and carbon footprint, just some practical day-to-day actions that they can take. First thing is to understand that waste is not free. That's how the system has been gamed by the landfill operators. Waste is a utility that's become a tragedy of the commons. 
Electricity, we pay for on an individual level. Water, we pay for on an individual level. You turn the lights off in your home, you turn the hot water off because you pay for it. When it comes to waste, you could throw whatever you want out and it just seems to disappear. In fact, it's actually buried in your tax bill. And if you're somebody that does a great job recycling and diverts everything from landfill, but your neighbor throws everything in the garbage, your tax dollars are being used to send their stuff to landfill. So the first thing that people should do is understand that anything that isn't recycled, you're paying for it. Bottom line, it's in your tax bill, number one. Number two is then to start making sure that you try to recycle everything possible or figure out a way to reuse things. Consumption is not a bad thing. Consumption's a good thing. It provides people jobs. It provides people things that they want. The question is, what are you consuming? How are you consuming it? And then when you're done with the, the product or the package, what are you doing with it? I really hope that this session lights up some more sales and fires you up the bestseller chart. But any <laughs> other films or books that you would recommend the listeners take a look at to learn more about the circular economy, about sustainability in business, about personal impact? Let My People Go Surfing is a book that Yvonne Chouinard wrote. Yvonne is the founder of Patagonia. Incredibly successful business for the last 40 years. He did it the right way. He made a lot of money. He goes to sleep every night feeling good about himself. There's lots of entrepreneurs and business people that have built similar businesses. We don't read enough about them in the Wall Street Journal or in business school. So I would go read Let My People Go Surfing by Yvonne Chouinard. I think that's a really important book and story about the way to build a business the right way. Okay, great. Anything else that you'd like to leave with the audience today in terms of what you've learned? I think that if you look at the top investors over the last 50 years, let's call it Jeremy Grantham, George Soros, Warren Buffett, they've had theories about the market that they stayed true to no matter what was going on in the short term. And They've had some big losses along the way, but because they stay disciplined to their theory on markets over the long term, they made themselves a lot of money and they made their LPs and partners a lot of money. Another way to answer that ESG question that you had was, I don't care too much about all the noise around ESG on a day-to-day -day basis or a month-to-month -month basis. It's here to stay for many, many reasons. And so I try to keep our team focused on the long-term and that it's here to stay. Every step toward that that we make in the long-term is going to build exponential value because every day there's people questioning, there's people dropping out, there's people who aren't sure. And so I think it's really important to continue to learn and shift your model when necessary, but as much as possible, if you believe in what you're doing, stick to it. Well, thank you so much, Ron, for joining us today. I think it was highly informative, motivating, and applicable to everyone listening today. So really appreciate your time. Thank you and glad to be here. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app. 
Kendra 